This is Energy Voice Out Loud, leading the global energy conversation. I'm Alistair Thomas and welcome to our podcast. I'm joined as ever by our Africa and LNG editor Ed Reed and digital journalist Hamish Penman. And it's been another busy week, guys, and I for one am glad that the Telegraph has not leaked all of my WhatsApp messages. You know, I know that I know there's no public interest there, but you know, I mean, all they would have found screenshots being sent of Star Wars memes and oil and gas stories from LinkedIn, which is pretty damn sad. Uh, did you guys see that this week about Matt Hancock and his many leaked messages by uh, the journalist who was the ghostwriter on his book? <laughs> I didn't realize she was the ghostwriter. That kind of makes the whole thing a bit even funnier. Yes, yes. It's mental. I, I, I don't think there's a great amount of public sympathy. Um, flying around for him as the as he was voted for so relentlessly when he was in the jungle. I know, and that was part of his rehabilitation kind of image thing, wasn't it? I think the book was as well, but that seems to have spectacularly backfired. But, uh, you know, um, always always funny to see these things going down. But, uh, yeah. Um, I, anyway, let's, let's veer away from the perennially crisis-stricken uh, Matt Hancock and get on to the business of the day. And we'll kick off with... David Whitehouse, the new chief executive of the North Sea trade body Offshore Energies UK, who we spoke to a week or so ago for two pieces, one of which is up now on Energy Voice on the windfall tax and the other, a wider feature, which I'm plugging now for our printed supplement, which is out on Monday. And you may have read it by the time you hear this. Um, So David Whitehouse has come in, taken over as the head of OE UK from Deirdre Mickey, who was there for nearly a decade in the top job, kind of steering the ship through... A pretty tumultuous time, perhaps the most tumultuous time. And we had, you know, the remnants of the 2014-15 downturn with the COVID downturn and then more recently the political stuff um, off the back of the windfall tax and that. So she was leading the group for a very long time through what has been a pretty tough uh, period. But um, sitting down with David Whitehouse, I I wanted to get a sense of why now, you know, the North Sea is such a tinderbox politically that who would want to take this job? And it is surely one of the most difficult and divisive times to do it. Um, and I think it's fair to say there's going to be a lot of lobbying required in the near term if they are to, I mean, as he said, it's going to be a busy couple of years, uh, certainly a busy couple of months as well. You know, we've got a general election coming up, but also let's not forget the budget on the 15th of March. So yeah, I was at OEUK and met him and put that question to him, how much lobbying have you done before and why take on the job now? And yeah, he, I mean, he knows the industry very well. Uh, he's been working around the world the last 20 years or so uh, at CNR International, seven years as the managing director uh, of that company. And um, he kind of said, he said it himself, the level of government engagement he's going to have to do now is new territory. He's not had to lobby to that extent before. And I suppose, I suppose that's a, a mark in the negative side. But, you know, he also pointed out, I guess, that OEUK has connections already there. The door is open for those conversations anyway. And uh, I guess because he's not a politician, uh, he came across, in my view, uh, I guess you can read it and see for yourself, but he came across quite genuine uh, and importantly kind of understood the the human side of it. When people say, oh, 90% of North Sea operators have cut spending because of the windfall tax, you know, what does that even mean? I think the majority of the public are just like, well, that means less money for the big oil companies, right? That's great, you know, forget those guys. And I guess the message that he was able to put across because he actually understands the industry is, no, actually, when, when you talk about uh, companies cutting profits, that's just hundreds of jobs being lost here in the UK. It's not impacting international oil firms. They're going to go and spend that money elsewhere. But, you know, 
we domestically are the ones that are uh, getting impacted by it. So I think, you know, and he kind of said, he seemed quite genuine. You can, And he said, if you, you can kind of tell that, sto- put that story across for the industry. And he says, he kind of repeatedly talked about the great story that the industry has to tell, you know, keeping jobs, cutting emissions, transferring across to renewables, boosting UK manufacturing. And he thinks that's a story that any political party can get behind. Now, Again, we're looking at a general election, most likely next year. And that's got a hostile, I think it's a fair word to use, Labour government on the way, if the polls are to be believed, who want to tax the industry even more and remove the investment incentives linked to the windfall tax. And that's despite companies like Harbour blaming the current regime for job cuts and and various other companies uh, certainly peering back their spending. So, yeah, I mean, he says there's an argument to be won with Labour, but the industry's argument is the right one, he reckons. Uh, he's also got a meeting with Ed Miliband uh, coming up. And uh, and yeah, I mean, a, a few things to unpack there, I guess, but optimistic. Uh, I think what we need to see more in, in the weeks and months ahead is just we need to see more of that to get a sense of the impact it's going to make, particularly on the big media stage, should that happen. There will probably be opportunities at some point or the other for him to put his case across in, in front of what has been you know, a pretty hostile audience as well. So yeah, more time needed. Um, I've got to say, I was expecting them to appoint a politician or a lobbyist here. They've gone the opposite direction. Um, but having sat down with them, yeah, maybe it is the right man for the job and the right approach. It seems like a big ask there, doesn't it? I mean, I think, you know, this, this, despite how, uh, how, how good a foot he can put forwards, I think there's a level of sort of baked in hostility to uh, energy companies, to oil companies, particularly at the moment, right? I mean, I think, you know, obviously looking at the sort of the high profits that they've been making, looking at the, obviously also the the, the level of, uh, I mean, it's I'm not really sure it's an entirely fair line to draw, but, you know, looking at, uh, looking at how sort of, you know, domestic, uh, you know, gas and, and power prices are going up. It's it's very easy, isn't it, to point a finger at uh, at the fat cats of the North Sea, and uh, I mean, I I wonder, you know, with, with with the best will in the world, how much progress he can make in the face of that sort of uh, widespread uh, hostility. That overwhelming, yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, I I think that's a fair, a very fair point. Um, he seemed to suggest that if the industry can kind of speak as one, if you like, oh, UK has got something like four hundred members. Uh, and he, he he seemed to be suggesting he could leverage all 400 of them as kind of one voice and use all of their resources pooled kind of together to, you know, get this messaging uh, across that, you know, if you continue to tax in the way, in the fashion that you are, then it's just going to mean the domestic industry is, is cut down and you're going to be importing more from overseas. Um, I think also that the, the overwhelming ask is, you know, industry happy to pay its taxes uh, we don't want to shy away from that, but the windfall tax should be a windfall tax rather than, uh, you know, something that's prolonged should the oil and gas prices drop. And indeed, you know, if oil and gas prices did drop and they're taxed at 75%, I think what you would find is not, we're not talking about hundreds of jobs, but thousands of jobs being lost. I think, you know, the, the Treasury has told him that they will kick off and get a fiscal review onto a price floor Um in the coming weeks. But in terms of that wider emotive argument, yeah, uh, I don't know, Ed. I mean, it's uh, it's quite a difficult one to get across, and certainly I'd be feeling sceptical about anybody's ability to, to do it. I mean, a, a couple of years ago, uh, Deirdre Mickey, during COP26, was on BBC debate night, making many of these arguments. The windfall tax obviously wasn't really uh, in play at that point, but, um, you know, certainly she was making these arguments around 
the importance of the domestic industry, if you cut that down without a proper transition, then you're just going to be importing more from overseas at higher emissions. A pretty hostile audience. Um, it's meant to be a balanced audience. It definitely wasn't. And um, I, don't, I don't think you ever get a, a, a balanced audience of these things, do you? No, definitely not. But, you know, <laughs> and I thought she argued that case about as well as anybody could. So, you know, at a certain point, when people's bills are going up and they're struggling to feed their families and they are seeing these profits of international oil companies. And, and, you know, OEUK and others have been trying to say, look, this is the profits on a global basis, not in the UK. You can't just tax profits made elsewhere. You know, what would what would happen if a, a US company tried to tax a company on the profits they make in the UK? There'd be carnage. Um, but the point is, I guess, when people are struggling to feed their families and whatever else, you know, they don't necessarily want to hear it. Uh, and I can I can totally sympathise with that. Um but it's just, it's just quite a tricky one, isn't it? Because you, you do need to fight the case for the industry. But uh, yeah, it's it's also quite a difficult one to one to make. Uh, a couple of other points to, to put across, though. Um, he's doing a master's in renewable energy, um, which I found quite surprising. Um, but OEUK is, is no longer just the oil and gas trade body. It's, uh, it's got offshore energies attached to it now. So studying that at Aberdeen University. Um, so, you know, we'll see. Uh, it, it remains... Very much in in the mind of, of of the public, the oil and gas trade body, but um, you never know. All this all this image rehabilitation going on, Matt Hancock, oil and gas. Uh, we'll see. So, anyway, we will leave the White House and step across to Angola next with Ed. In a world where the scarcity of key resources is starting to be felt and the impact of climate change is all too apparent, sustainable growth is no longer a choice; it is a necessity. Sustainable Growth Voice is a new online publication championing individuals and organisations that are pushing sustainable growth forward, making a positive impact on the environment, society and the economy. From innovative technologies solving sustainability challenges to social enterprises promoting inclusive growth and transformative policy initiatives, SG Voice covers the fundamental drivers at the heart of the new sustainable economy. Join the conversation that the world needs now. Visit SG Voice for knowledge, inspiration and insight from across the sustainable growth landscape. So Ed, I just want to make sure I've got this right. It's all a go-go with a go-go. Yay! I mean, it's 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 crying out for those uh for those those sort of cracks, isn't it? I mean, it's too easy, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, like when 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 they when they name it a go-go, I mean, what are you expecting? I mean, there was just there's just no other choices. Headlines. Right, right. Angola a go-go. Obviously, it's it's alliteration. It's it's just good at everything going for it. Mwah. Perfect. So yeah, so it was a big week. It was a big week um, for uh, for Angola Agogo, as they say. Um, so Azul Energy, which you may think, hey, what is that company? I've not heard of a company called like that making billion dollar uh, commitments in in Angola. Surely that's uh, that's that that's unheard of. So just to refresh the old uh, mind box, uh, Azul Energy is is a sort of a joint venture kind of incorporated company uh, of uh, BP and Eni uh, linking up their both their interests in in Angola, becoming essentially the sort of the leading uh, Angolan independent, as it were, um, with, with with stakes in a, in, a, in a range of, of sort of deep water and deep water fields. 
and 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 so a, a really sort of you know really strong mover obviously uh years of of, of sort of insight and and, and uh interest going on in angola and kind of bringing it together into into azul is uh was was a was a major step that they they they, they completed last year and I think like this, this, this move to kind of uh, move ahead with uh, with a go go is is obviously a sort of a real demonstration of this kind of new commitment, because it feels like it's been a while since we've you know heard these sort of billion dollar you know kind of commitments in into upstream oil, right? I mean, I think it it feels like it's 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 been sort of off the table for for, for a long time, and and obviously in that way, it's 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 really encouraging to see things move forward. So to sort of uh, put a put a bit of a quick pricey on it. The um, Azul uh, said that the 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 sum of seven point eight billion dollars worth of, of of contracts was was moving ahead with a go go, so obviously a, a quite a significant move. Um, and and essentially, it's it's a new FPSO development uh, that is going to take uh, production from the uh, Agogo and Nadungo fields. Um, with some of the so Agogo started producing a couple of years ago with early production going to a another fpso so it's a sort of a two fpso development but really only involving one new fpso um but so the the whole sort of the integrated hub i think that's what they call it should produce about 175,000 barrels per day of oil in uh i think about 2027 so to, so to get there uh obviously most of the spending has gone on the uh the fpso so yinson holdings um has won a contract worth just over five billion dollars to uh, provide this uh, this FPSO, which has about one hundred twenty thousand barrels per day of, of of oil production. It's got uh, also got sort of gas and water reinjection. Um, so uh, other 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 big wins: Acre Solutions, Baker Hughes, Sipem, Sub C Seven, Technip FMC. They're all there, and they're obviously all keen as blooming mustard. Uh, to 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 get some of this uh, this 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 sweet sweet sort of subsea action underway again, after obviously what's what's it's been a it's been it's it's been a, a long time in in the wilderness and it feels like this is this is a really big move. So yeah, so it it feels uh, it feels like a, like a very encouraging uh, step. Um, and obviously Angola has uh, struggled in recent years to uh, secure new investments. It's been seen as a sort of a, a, a tough place to operate. High taxes, uh, challenging political uh, situations in in some regards. There have been questions around corruption and transparency. So it's 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 one of those areas that is that is hard to operate in. But obviously, they've uh, this 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 move by Azul maybe starts to uh, starts to to to, to write that uh, that neglected step. And and as the um, the CEO of of, of Azul said, it's the um, start of a new wave of major investments in in angola's deep water so it seems like there's there's more to come it does seem like a real feeding frenzy i must say um just looking at that flurry of of contracts uh, so so what new new fpso dozens of wells uh, i guess for me it's a question i mean how long has it been in the works and and then yeah i mean going into that wider angola picture uh, you, you mentioned that it, it's been a little bit politically challenging uh, in terms of taxation and otherwise um 
turning a page then, uh, it would seem here. Is that fair enough to say? I mean, how does it compare to, I guess, the, the landscape and, and other kind of resources in Angola at this particular point? Yeah, so, well, so, I mean, it's it's been actually kind of quite fast moving, actually. So I, I think, um, so I think Agogo started producing in, in 2020 and it was, it was an early production sort of scheme. So it was only, I think, nine months after Discovery. So it's been, I suppose, Three years, I would say, roughly, to get to this point where they're kind of kicking off this this massive uh, new development. So, I mean, I think it's it obviously kind of plays into Eni's sort of plan around sort of near field production and infrastructure led exploration and and all those sorts of buzzwords that we hear and even BP, right? I mean, I think you know BP kind of came out at its uh, its results um, a couple of weeks ago, didn't it? And said, look, we are keen to get new, uh, additional, more additional sort of short term production, and obviously that's that's really where kind of a go go is playing. So. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, th- I think there's a, there's a sort of a clear sort of strategic rationale in it, and it obviously plays well with what these big companies are thinking about in terms of uh, sort of advantaged barrels is the uh, is the is the phrase that you, that you always hear, isn't it? Right. So it's 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 sort of it's it's close to existing production. It's in an area they know. Uh, they've got the you know the the sort of the, the the they know how the local landscape works, and I suppose that's the thing, isn't it? Right. That sort of question around uh, the uh, the uh, Angolan political outlook. So um, you know the 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 new the well, I say the new president. The president's been there for for a few years now, but he's. He he kind of came in with a, with a clear mandate to try and revitalize uh, Angola's uh, deep water oil production, and he's you know he's he's been actually remarkably successful, and I think there's been a real drive locally to uh, to kind of give that message to the industry. So I think they've you know ANPG is the sort of local regulator has been really keen to kind of go out and make its case to people in ways that. Maybe historically, uh, we didn't see so much of from Angola. Um, so I think you know that there, there, there is a sort of a, a local drive for new investments, and I, I mean they've there's, 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 there are sort of additional projects in in the works um, uh, from the sort of political side. I mean I think they've been talking about uh, you know reducing taxes in Cabinda, which is the sort of the uh, his, the heart of sort of historical Angolan production, where sort of Chevron is 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 a kind of the main player, and 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 that's obviously a, a, an effort to, to sort of try and revitalize you know that sort of maturing basin that's you know maybe sort of starting to slow down, starting to you know be on the wrong side of the decline curve, and and obviously sort of trying to tackle that. Um, which I suppose you know, sort of speaking, uh, you know, obviously looking at it from your your, your North Sea sort of perspective, and and obviously I suppose the way in which you know you're sort of seeing you know the uh, OEUK's um, difficulties and 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 ways of sort of trying to make that case. Obviously, Angola is 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 kind of moving in the opposite direction, right? It's 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 gone through a period of of, of high taxation, and now it's kind of out the other side and is trying to make it more appealing so i think you know there there are there are there is there are talk of of, of more fids i think you know total is, is is obviously one to watch in the near future they've been saying that they expect to uh, approve a, a a big project early 2023 they've said so i feel that 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 should be pretty soon so yeah it, it feels like a like a like a sort of a positive story for once uh from uh, from angola so yeah long long may it continue for once yes indeed long may it continue okay uh well thank you then ed we'll uh i'll go go from a go go now and head on over hey. yeah i know I, I couldn't resist <laughs> uh head on over to methyl and fife where more problems are rising for harland and wolf 
Energy Voice investigates and reports on what matters in global energy, helping sector leaders understand the geopolitical and economic factors underpinning current events and giving them a view on what's coming over the horizon. Each year, 3.4 million professionals use Energy Voice as a trusted source of breaking news and insight. Subscribers to Energy Voice receive unlimited access to the Energy Voice website, including premium content, free and discounted special reports and additional content, free access to the Energy Voice live app featuring a personalized feed, and priority access to Energy Voice events. For a 30-day free trial subscription to the Energy Voice website and app, visit energyvoice.com slash subscriptions. Join the global energy conversation with Energy Voice. Okay, so Hamish, uh, job cuts at methyl. I'm getting a kind of bifab deja vu here. Uh, bring us up to speed. Yeah, that's uh, not had the troubles to seek um, in the last few years. Anyway, you'll remember it was one of the the three that was three yards that was moth- mothballed um, as a result of of bifab's collapse at the back end of 2020. Um, it, it, alongside the facility in Arnish, was then bought by Harland and Wolf um, a few weeks later in 2021. Uh, the Burnt Island Yard is still laying there. I think if you go, you can go right through it on the train um, if you go through down that part of the world and there's nothing going on, so I don't really know what the plan is there. Um, but Harland and Wolf do own the, the Methyl and the Arnish facility. And it seemed that Methyl anyway had gotten a, a new lease on life after a contract to manufacture eight jackets for the NNG wind farm. That's a big EDF development um, that's currently being it's approaching its final stages um, off the coast of Fife. Uh, but anyway, this contract came with a promise of around 300 jobs and was met with, as you can imagine, a large amount of fanfare at the time. Um, since then, the price of steel has gone up, supply chains globally have been strangled, um, and things have become far more challenging. I don't think anyone would deny that. Um, so last year it was announced, I think it was around September time, uh, that an agreement had been reached to descope the contract from eight jackets to four. And then the day before uh, Hogmanay, the company revealed it had reached an agreement with Saipem to drop the deal altogether, saying it had become sub-economic. Uh, a few weeks later, the redundancies came, as you'd expect. So Harland and Wolf revealed in mid-February that it was in the process of rationalising its methyl facility. As part of that procedure, it intended to streamline the workforce at the site to around 115 core personnel. So... Cutting through the business speak, I think everyone knew what was happening when they announced that. Um, so GMB Union, who have got a number of boots on the ground there, said at the time that over 60 workers were facing unemployment. There were then some reports earlier this week um, suggesting that the real number was far higher than that. And we obviously touched base with the GMB again. And it just so happened that their Scotland organiser Dominic Pritchard was uh, going in front of a Scottish government committee on Wednesday morning on the uh, Economy and Fair Work Committee. And during that, he said that actually the true number of true scale of job losses is is far higher. 177 people have been paid off at the site. He also accused Harland Wolf of not paying its bills, of not having certain things, uh, grinding stones needed to actually complete the work because they hadn't paid for them, and even failing to provide toilet paper for workers at the site. And he quite rightly asked of ministers, where is the just transition here? So I did contact Harland and Wolf three times yesterday for comment, was blanked on each occasion. So they have not addressed whether these claims about toilet paper and bills being paid and where it is indeed whether the, the scale of jobs is correct. Now, I've actually spoken to John Wood a few times in the past, their chief executive. He's always come across as very nice. He was very, very friendly. Um, I obviously had big 
big plans for the site. And I don't think that anyone would suggest that it's it's an easy gig to have at the moment, given all the challenges. But perhaps coming out and addressing some of these points would be a would be prudent. Um, but yeah, but to set this kind of in in the context of Scotland's offshore wind history and future more widely, it's a a big concern. I'm sure many will be getting PTSD from from the Bifab fallouts. Um, but yeah, just all these big promises of this was when this contract was announced, it was almost seen as something of a step change of the lack of green jobs before it is what it is, but this is now the new world and we're going to ensure that manufacturing does take place here. And then at basically the first contracts, it's faltered. Um, and I think a lot of people will be rightly very worried and especially for developers, and it's not so much an issue, but they have all these grand plans of we're going to build X and Y amount in Scotland, but there's just not, well, there's one, not the skills to do it. There's not the facilities to do it first and foremost, though. So they can have as many targets and pledges as they like, but until there's tangible yards capable of manufacturing what they want, then it's a pipe dream. Yeah. No, I can't, I can't but agree with that, Hamish. I think you've hit the nail on the head there. Uh, you know, this is one yard, um, but it does bode poorly, doesn't it? Collapse of this one contract relatively modest but you know in the scale of things but we're talking about yeah gigawatt scale factory line production of turbines towers etc etc for scotwind projects gigawatt scale scotwind projects in what scarcely 10 years less than that by the time we need to get everything up and running ahead of time it just seems this kind of exemplifies how long a way there is to go before that's actually a reality and not a long time to do it in. And, you know, very well, as you say, Hamish, getting these local content targets in. But if the infrastructure isn't there at the end of the day, and, you know, that feels to me, and we've said it before in this podcast, a bit of a hard out for the developers. Well, you know, look, we'd love to have done it in Scotland, but unfortunately, you guys haven't gotten your act together. And yeah, the developers have a role to play in that, um, certainly. And, you know, Certainly, I think pretty much every company we've spoken to have said, we're going to do everything we can. We can't take excuses. We need to get this done. It's not just up to the companies, though. I think we need to bear in mind the role of government here, the amount of bureaucracy and red tape that's going on, and the fact that somebody's got to corral all these different ports together to get their uh, infrastructure in place and getting the right stuff in place. Because not everyone, even if we had a really scaled up industry in Scotland, we're not going to be able to do everything. There's just too much that's coming, again, within such a short time frame. And, you know, yeah, Harland and Wolf, that's that's one yard, but it it just it, it kind of exemplifies this industrial failure uh, for Scottish offshore wind, and it just it keeps happening. So, you know, I, I don't know at what point lessons get learned here, but it feels like there isn't much time to do them in. And and Hamish, what what are Harland and Wolf saying now in terms of their approach to these type of contracts in the future? Am I, am I right in saying they're just going to take much smaller scale versions of this kinds of thing? Is it, what, what's their strategy now? I know you said you've not managed to speak to the CEO since, but yeah, I think it'd be good for him to do that. <laughs> yeah, well, agreed. But no, I think if, from what they said in the trading update where they announced these redundancies, it seems like it's going to be piecemeal offshore wind contracts. I mean, it's, it, it doesn't seem like in the same way as Bifab that Harland the Wolf is on the brink of brink of collapse. I mean, they've got yards in Appledore, Belfast. They're a big company listed on the London Stock Exchange. But something's not going right at Methyl. So I think they've they've got a contract for a few barges now, or, or it's a contract that was won by another one of the yards that Methyl's now going to complete some of the work there. Having spoken to somebody who knows the site well, says that that's not going to create that many jobs. And then I think from there, it's just going to be little offshore wind contracts, potentially with a view to, to scaling those up as they, as they gain a track record. 
But again, this is a, a lot of hoping and dreaming and sort of what, what could be rather than his substantial investment in this facility. And they have invested in the facility, I'm sure, but that doesn't mean that it's up to the standard that's required for, for, these, for these contracts. And indeed, the standard of ports that do have this, that kind of state backing in the likes of Norway and Denmark, when I mean, you see some of the facilities there, they're just, just no comparison really between the two, which is odd given how much free space there is in Scotland, especially. I mean, metal's perhaps not a great example of that, but look up Ardesia and places like that. They do have these. They've certainly got plans up there, but there's going to be a hell of a lot of red tape, as you mentioned, to get through that. And, you know, what developers might just say, you know, we're not going to bother. Who made this running order? And to put the, the really sad story at the end, was that me? <laughs> excuse me. Excuse me. Ed, what do you make of all of this? Can you shed any uh, positive tones on, on our rather dour ending? I don't know. This is, this is entirely my fault, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I suppose, I suppose, you know, in terms of, uh, I, I guess, sort of, you know, seeing it from a sort of slightly outside look, I mean, it, it just feels like a kind of like the the struggle that, that, that is facing the, the offshore wind industry about... Uh, uh, one sort of trying to get costs down, and at the same time trying to kind of stimulate a domestic industry, and 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 I wonder if these two aims are possibly slightly antithetical. I don't I don't know if that's a positive uh, question, but uh, it, it it feels like uh, it, uh, the the sort of the, the, the big challenge to me. Yeah, I, I think well, I think we're going to get our heads around it uh, sooner rather than later. Anyway. Uh, Dower notes aside, that is it for this latest episode of Energy Voice Out Loud. I'm off to go and send some Star Wars memes to Ed and Hamish on WhatsApp. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, thanks to Ed and Hamish for joining me. I've been Alistair Thomas, and thanks for listening. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com Sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Outloud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Outloud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.